Uh, okay, well, we're going to carry on in our study through Colossians, and we're still in chapter 3 of Colossians, and we're going to be looking at just a couple of verses this morning, between verses 12 and 17. I entitled this Bible study, Clothes That Make the Believer. You've probably heard this saying before. Uh, it goes something like, clothes make the man. It's a recognition that, that the way in which you dress presents yourself to other people in a way that, that predisposes them to think about you in a, different, in, in a certain way, right? Actually, that, that phrase, clothes makes the man, it's been attributed to Mark Twain, and the full quote that he said was, clothes make the man, naked people have little or no influence on society, <laughs> which used to be true, but these days, who knows? Um, but what people are wearing has a way of communicating to us where they're coming from, what, what the characteristics of them are. A police officer's uniform, right? It, it conveys to us the civil authority of the state. Uh, a general, a military general, his stars on his lapel tell us his rank and his status. And for those of us that work in the corporate world or ever worked in, uh, in sales, uh, you'd be advised that if you were going to see an important customer, you should wear what we used to term the credibility suit. Credibility suit was a navy blue suit with a crisp white shirt and a red tie. It showed gravitas, it showed importance, it showed trust, okay? Well, Paul is using clothing as a metaphor to describe how we as Christians should present ourselves to one another and to the world. There are characteristics that define a Christian. And we learned last week when we were in the beginning portion of chapter 3 of Colossians that, that our position in Christ means that we, we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens, so to speak, of the world. Our, our gaze should be fixed on heaven. Our, our fixation should be on Christ and not on things of the world. And when our lives are adorned with Christian graces like, like love and, and mercy and meekness and forgiveness, then we are dressed for success, the success being how we represent Christ to the world, right? Because having come to Christ, our mission is to magnify and to glorify him. And so this morning, Paul is urging the Colossians, he's also urging you and me, to be clothed in a manner that is fitting of our newfound uh, home, our newfound allegiance. And so, first of all, we're going to look at some of these defining characteristics of the way in which the Lord sees us. And then we're going to hear from Paul the, the character graces that we should wear as garments in the world so that people, when they see you, they see Christ. And, uh, you know, I've, I've talked with many of you before, and you've, some of you, maybe all of you, have had this experience at one time or another, where you're in the midst of other people. Maybe you're sharing the gospel. Maybe you're just uh, comforting somebody who's in a difficult spot. But people might pull you aside. They might say, man, what's, what's different about you? Why are you like this? And you hope that that's because you're wearing Christian graces and not because you're acting foolish or something. But, but very often, Christians are called out by non-believers for being different in a good way. And that's what this passage is all about, is that what we wear in terms of our attitudes and the way in which we relate to people should evidence Christ. 
Why don't you stand with me? We're going to read these verses 12 through 17 of Colossians chapter 3. And then we'll start to unpack the verses. Here's what they say. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Heavenly Father God, we pray now that your spirit would fill this place, Lord, that you would meet us here with that profound presence that only you can bring. Lord, we desire to evidence the very things that are described in this passage in our lives. And yet sometimes the world can hijack our spirit, Lord, and can can turn our eyes and our gaze elsewhere. And so this morning, Father, I pray that we would be holy and solely fixed on you to hear these words ministered to our hearts by the spirit of the living God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, characteristics of us should dictate our dress, just like it does in other contexts, by the way. Uh, A wife or a husband, we wear a a wedding ring. I have a wedding ring on. It's there to signify that I am dedicated in my life to one woman. That's a characteristic of me, and it's evidenced in something that I wear. Uh, I see Joe Powell sitting back there. Joe works for UPS. He fixes their airplanes. But the guys that come to your house and drop off all these cool boxes and stuff that you've ordered and are worried about how you're going to ultimately pay for them, Well, that guy's wearing a brown uniform, and that's because you know that those folks deliver a lot of packages, they're on time, they're polite, all of that. And in some of these opening verses, we get these characteristics that that are true about us because they're the way in which Christ has transformed us. They're the way in which Christ sees us. And so the first thing we see there in verse 12 is that we are the elect of God. It's very easy to skip by that word elect. It's very easy to misconstrue what's being said there. But what we are told is that we did not earn our exalted status that we looked at in detail last week as a child of God. There's nothing in who we are. There is no quality about us. There is no uh, good deed we did. There is no resistance of evil that we do that entitles us to this exalted status uh, as a child of God. No, in fact, we have been chosen by him simply because of his grace and mercy. And this is something that was true of the other chosen people that we find in the Bible, God's people, Israel. At the time that God called out Abraham, he could have called out a man 
from anywhere in the world. He could have called out any, he could have created from, from the one whom he chose any people that he wished. He could have even chose the Italians. <laughs> but he didn't. We'll have to understand that later. <laughs> no, he chose the Jewish nation. This is what he said to them. This is Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, speaking to Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This was now Moses speaking to God's people after a time when they were in bondage for 400 years, after a time in which they were persecuted in all manner of ways, after a time in which they demonstrated the height of unfaithfulness and rebelliousness. God often refers to them in the scripture as a stiff-necked people. There were times the golden calf incident comes to mind. Other times when the, the children of Israel, as they made their way through the wilderness, grumbled against God. Question, why did you bring us out of Egypt where we were well fed to bring us in the midst of the wilderness and you're just giving us this manna, which by the way was bread from heaven. And so you could look at the way in which Israel often related to God and, and we would wonder why would God ever choose them and having chosen, why doesn't he just cast them out? But we, we serve a God who is a promise keeper. That's Israel's example. Now think of the other chosen people the Bible speaks of. That would be you and me. Unless you get too judgmental about the rebellious hearts of the Jewish people, look at your own heart. And I'm not even talking about before you got saved. I'm talking about right now. How many daily rebellions we mount. How many times we ignore the word of God. Or we, we ignore the, leaning, the lead, leading of the Holy Spirit. And yet God loves us and keeps his promises to us. And he elected us. Now, this is the part that a lot of Christians have great difficulty with. Because what the Bible tells us is that he chose you, purposefully chose you before the foundations of the world. If you don't believe me, just turn real quickly. Whether you believe me or not, we're going to turn there. So I just want you to know that. <laughs> to Ephesians chapter 1. Between verses 4 and 6, the concept is laid out for us there. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I'm pretty old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What we are being told here is that before the foundations of the world, God chose you. Some people want to, because they have a hard time with the fact that God could cho choose them before they made a decision to come to faith, they try to rationalize by saying, well, God knew who would choose him and so those are the ones he put on the list. No, that would make us the chooser and not God. No, he chose you, which is to say he drew you to him while you were yet a sinner. 
Jesus would even say that unless the Father draws you, you'd never come. Now, we have a hard time with that because we want to believe that we came to faith because we made a choice. And if we had no choice, why then, it, it, in our mind, it diminishes the value of our salvation. But it's quite the opposite. See, we don't know what God knows. We can never know what God knows. God lives outside of time. So he's not bound by a chronology where at one time we didn't believe, we hear the gospel, we consider it, we come to faith, we're saved. For God, everything's right now. And so we should not be troubled by what God knows and what God did because the Bible clearly states that although we are elected, we as human beings must make a choice. And the Bible also assures us that that whoever chooses God, he will in no wise cast out. We are given a free will, but yes, it's encompassed by the total dominion and providence of God. And so don't be troubled by the fact that you had a choice to make and you made it, but then you find out that God had chosen you since before the foundations of the world. In fact, I would urge you to feel special about that because God considered you and sent his son to die for you while you were yet sinners. And so that's the first characteristic about us is we're God's elect. That means something. That's just like, I wear this ring because I'm, I'm Michelle's elect, right? She chose me over all those other idiots that we went to high school with. <laughs> now, he says something else there in verse 12. He says that, um, he says that we are holy. Holy means to be set apart. He, God wants us all to himself. See, this is the struggle that we have in the Christian life. It's giving God all of us. The, the lesson we looked at last week was really all about that. It's about, look, don't, don't put your heart and your mind on the things of the world because where your heart is, you're going to follow. You know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, says Jesus. And if we value things in the world overly, if we value them even more than God, then we are going to be in the world more than we are in the Lord. And this is something we constantly have to, we have to be conscious of, is that we need to stay in fellowship with the Lord. He want, this is why God speaks so much and uses the metaphor so much of a marriage when he speaks of Jesus Christ in the church. This is why men are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Women are told to, to submit to their husbands as, as we, the church, are submitted to our husband, Christ. It's because we have exclusivity. That's what defines a marriage in God's design of it. Exclusivity, a closed loop. Something that is shared between one man and one woman and it's very intimate and it's very personal and it should not be intruded upon by any other nor should any of those in that marital bond step outside of that bond to go to anyone else. This has been, as you know, ravaged in our day. The marital, marital institution. I mean, there was a time when if a movie star, a movie star from Hollywood had a divorce, it could, it could derail their career. Now they collect divorces, divorces like, like charms on a bracelet, and they're lauded for it. They're lauded for even cheating in the midst of their marriage. This is, this is not what it means to be set apart into a marriage. 
And we are set apart in a marriage. We, we are exclusively God's. This is, this is the way the Lord describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The Lord is speaking about how he basically owns us. And he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God is holy, right? That's, there are two defining characteristics of God, holiness and love. God is set apart. It means that there's no other one like him. And in God's eyes, we are holy. He, he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. If you are part of him, why then we must live holy lives. And so holiness should be a characteristic that we consider about ourselves. And once again, the way in which we present ourselves to the world should evidence that. Now, the third thing that he calls out in verse 12 is he calls out that we're beloved. I mentioned that holiness is a defining characteristic of God, but the other defining characteristic of God is, is love. In fact, we are told in the scripture that God is love. And when we think about how, uh, how love works in the world, in my experience of living, there are a lot of different emotions or, or frames of mind that people can engender. Some of them not so great. Anger, bitterness, hate. These are attitudes we harbor at times, don't we? And these are destructive. These are destructive forces in our lives. When we hate somebody or when we have bitterness towards somebody, it's like drinking poison and hoping they die because it destroys us. In contrast, love is the most powerful emotion. It is one of the most powerful forces in the world. For love, people will do things they would never imagine doing any other time or in any other way. And so we can imagine the kind of love that God has for us, that he would send Jesus, his son, who enjoyed all of the glories of heaven, had all of the godly prerogatives one could imagine, and he set aside that to clothe himself in the same frail flesh that we live in and he came to earth as a man and he suffered unimaginable suffering culminated by his separation from the father because of the sin he bore on our behalf and then you start to understand the depth of the love of Christ and that has been imparted to us that is a characteristic of us and so to summarize We've been chosen by God. He highly values you. If you're sitting in this room as a believer, know that God wanted you with him for eternity. He chose you, not for any quality that you possess, but simply because he decided to. We are loved by him. We're set apart by him for his exclusive enjoyment. And in this way, the adornment that the people of God must wear should conform to this wonder of a life that he has given us. And so we start to see the, the wardrobe. Let's think of these different Christian character graces as items of a wardrobe that God has imparted to us. And the first that he mentions there 
in verse 12 is tender mercies and kindness. We live in a world that is growing increasingly less kind. And I think we have opened ourselves up to be abused at light speed by all of the social media that people turn their attention to, don't we? It's amazing how, I always chuckle at how people can post something that by any stretch of the imagination is just plain inflammatory. It's like tossing a Molotov cocktail into somebody's house. And then in the comments, someone will comment and call them out on it. And they'll flip out like they're being abused. You know, we have reached a point in our society where language is considered violence. And I mean real violence. And where that heads is if you speak to somebody in a way that they don't, they don't receive well, they accuse you of perpetrating violence upon them, which entitles them to respond to you with real violence. That's the kind of world we've gotten into or that we've, that's grown up around us is that people treat other people very roughly. And of course, with the political polarization of our nation, it's gotten to a fever's pitch. In the midst of that comes you and me. In the midst of that is the testimony of Jesus Christ that comes, comes to the world based upon what you and I decide to clothe ourselves. God places a special value on mercy and kindness. One of the things that grieved him about his people Israel was that they had reached a point in their history, much like we have reached a point in our history, where kindness and mercy were out the window. And every man and woman did what they felt was right in their own eyes. When we do what's right in our own eyes, you'd be surprised how roughly we can treat one another. This is what God said through the prophet Micah in Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Many years after that, Jesus Christ would be walking on the earth. And one day he would find Matthew, the tax collector. And he would call Matthew to himself. Now, tax collectors didn't have a great reputation in that day. Nothing's improved in our day, by the way. <laughs> the difference is we now have 87,000 of them that are armed, okay? But in spite of that, the Lord calls Matthew, and, and they go to Matthew's house to eat, where there are other tax collectors. And the Bible says that he sat with tax collectors and sinners, which was a little redundant, but tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees see this, and they, they ponder why they speak to some of Jesus' disciples. Say, why, do you, why is your teacher sitting with those sinners? And of course, Jesus knows the hearts of everybody, right? And so Jesus responds. This is in the 13th verse of Matthew 9. He says, he's speaking to these Pharisees, these judgmental people. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was quoting right there from uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And so when we think about kindness and mercy, us projecting who Christ is in our lives, we have to consider this. God spared us judgment for our sins by showing us mercy. 
Are we to now spare the world mercy so that we can stand in judgment of them? That is one of the worst things that Christians are accused of doing. And many times it's not true, but oftentimes it is. We have to be careful how we bring, how we, this is the balancing act. It's the tightrope we walk as Christians. We're called to be salt and light, right? Well, light is a source of truth, right? And salt is preserving, preserving the truth. But at the same time, we have to be merciful and kind. And so the tightrope we walk is share the truth, preserve the truth, but love the sinner because Jesus Christ spared us judgment that he might confer upon us mercy. And that's what we need to project, right, to the world. Now, he gives us another garment to wear there in verse 12, and that's humility. Never brag on your humility. You know why, right? Uh, Jesus is the arbiter of fashion here, and uh, he, he gives us humility to wear because, and we saw this not that long ago, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, a passage known by theologians and Bible students as the kenosis, it means the emptying. It's a Greek word that means the emptying. And it describes the emptying that Jesus went through before he, as he comes to earth in humanity. He empties himself of the godly prerogatives that he had. He, he steps away from the glory that is his as deity in the heavenly realms. And he comes into this mucky, dirty, cruel, unkind, unmerciful violent world and he does that to affect God's purpose and what we we are given when we are giving given this garment of of humility that Christ so ably wore is to be able to place ourselves in a world where everybody wants to be the expert on things everybody wants to show you what they know and they take even, the only thing they take greater pleasure in than showing you what they know is to show you what you don't know. And so when we stand for the gospel in a world that really worships science and human reason, what you and I will share with them will sound like utter nonsense. They will consider you a knuckle-dragging, Neanderthal, bigot person because you stand for the truths of the Bible. This is to be no surprise. The Lord tells us that. He told us that in the first Corinthian letter. He told us that, but for the spirit of God revealing the things of God, the spirit of man will not grasp them. And this is why God says I, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so the challenge we have when we wear that garment is to present the truth in humility. And when the slings and arrows of insults come at you, you don't respond in kind. You just simply humbly share the truth. You're not called to save anybody. You're, you're, you're not given the commission to argue, go out into the world and argue people into the kingdom of heaven Beating them over the head of the Bible, over the head with the Bible in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not the Great Commission. That's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is share the truth, testify to the truth, live the truth. What happens after that is up to the Holy Spirit and that individual. 
And you'll be abused for that. How you respond to that will de determine the, humble, the humility that you're wearing in that moment. Uh, we also learn there another garment in verse 12, which is meekness. Now, if humility is a pair of shoes, meekness is the matching handbag. Because meekness is a way in which we appear before people, not weak. Meekness is not weakness. You've heard this many times before. But it's having your vessel under control. And the control that should be exercised over your vessel is the Holy Spirit, not you. Because if, you know, if I take the wheel, um, you know, I can keep it on the road for a while, but if someone's really bothering me, I might just take a quick detour and boom, knock them out. Um, that's not what we're talking about. Meekness is, is whatever resource you have under control for the Lord. Moses was described, I believe it was in the book of Numbers, as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now, if you track very carefully with Moses' leadership of the people of God, he was no Casper Milktoast. He was somebody who was firm. He took strong stands. He, he issued forth discipline. And um, yeah, I mean, when I think of, when I think of meekness, think of, think of it in terms of a, a stallion, a fire, or a medicine. Stallion's a very powerful animal, a very dangerous animal. An unbroken stallion can kill you in a second. And trying to get near that animal could be the last thing you ever remember. A stallion under control, a magnificent animal. You, you see a stallion that's, that's under the control of an experienced rider, and it's just as impressive as it could be. Fire. Out of control, why? It's burning the state of California. Under control, it's heating your home. It's driving your car. It's getting climate activists angry at you. But it's, it's got a purpose that's directed, and it brings about a desirable result. Medicine. Think about chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is a poison, let's be honest. But it's a controlled poison. It has the ability to kill, but under control, it's killing that which is killing you so that you have life on the other side of it. That's the same thing you can see about us. We can be an uncontrolled poison, or we could be a tool in God's hand that could so convey the goodness of God that people will want to know him more. And that's the reason why we wear that garment. Long-suffering and forbearance is also there in verses 12 and 13. <laughs> we're talking about here a long fuse, okay? We need to have a long fuse. Think about long-suffering and forbearance as like really sort of loose, comfortable, light, airy, breathable garments. The kind of clothes I need to wear a lot. Let's face it. There are simply some people who are wired to annoy you. Some of you have discovered that you've married that person. <laughs> But that's just life, right? In, in, in our lives, uh, we encounter people, you know, some people just, we just agree. We just agree. That person just salves my soul. They just, they just refresh me. And then there's the other kind of people that don't. Maybe they openly irritate you. That's life. There is no life that anyone lives that is free of that influence unless you are a hermit 
living by yourself. And uh, in our flesh, we could, we, could, uh, we could have a hard time with that. And we can do things that, that dishonor our witness. We could disqualify our witness if we react to people that we find difficult in ways that are ungodly. And, and this is a garment, this is, this is like, I guess if you're wearing it right, it's almost like a tiara. It's like, yeah, man, you're, you've got this under control. And I admire people who have that kind of quiet spirit in the midst of, of folks who are, are being difficult. Now, I, I want to just provide one little um, caveat or ex- exception, and that is it's good to be long-suffering about the right things, but there are times when what is going on demands a firm response. And the scripture has them. I mean, if you go through Nehemiah chapter 13, you'll see a point where Nehemiah is is reacting to some of the severe compromise that was going on in the midst of his people. And his, his way of dealing with that was rather sharp, but it was called for in the instance that he rendered it. Jesus Christ twice cleansed the temple of people who were merchandising the, the Lord, basically, in that place. When we go to Israel in February, you'll see at the Temple Mount, you'll actually see little areas, little cubby holes that guide will point them out to you where there were vendors around the, the temple who were selling things, money changers, all kinds of different things were being sold there. And Jesus, he took some cords and made a whip. And drove them out. Don't, just don't do that for anything, by the way. Sometimes we have to do that with our kids, but, but you know what I mean. And then in verse 13, um, one that we spoke of earlier, forgiveness. Forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Very simply, we've been forgiven of everything. We're being forgiven as we still fall into sin from time to time. The regenerated heart should exude the same kind of forgiveness that we have been benefited by. The redeemed soul should look at those that wrong us with a fervent desire for restoration. This is hard. I'll admit it. It's hard. When somebody has wronged you, and particularly when they know you well enough to know exactly how to cut you the deepest and they do it. Letting that go is hard. In fact, it's not in human nature to do so. It has to be the divine nature that lives in us. Jesus illustrated this point very well when he told the parable in Matthew 18 of the servant who owed his master a lot of money. It was an amount of money that he could never pay in his life. And the master calls him before him and and the the servant is fully expecting that something really bad is going to happen because the master knows he can't pay it. And the master forgives him of the entire debt. And then that same servant goes out, finds a fellow servant who owes him a rather small amount of money. And that servant is begging on his colleague to say, "I I don't have the money right now. Can you give me a little more time? And instead, that servant who was forgiven by the master treats him harshly and has him arrested and when the master finds out about this the punishment he brings upon that ungrateful forgiven service servant is undone 
And we have to, we have to keep in mind, Jesus said there, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also to you if from your hearts uh, you forgive not everyone and his brother in their trespasses. This is a garment that I think distinguishes the Christian over anyone else is the ability to forgive even in, in light of terrible, terrible things. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, wrongs you, hurts you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. That's the objective, to gain your brother. Now, finally, in uh, verse 14, he speaks of, or not finally, but, but he speaks of love there. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is the garment that, that connects everything else together. In fact, love must be the motivation behind every one of these other character graces. Uh, we could be meek, but be motivated by fear to be meek. We can be humble, but yet use it as a form of bragging. Oh, yeah, I'm the most humble guy you've ever met, kind of thing. Uh, we can be forbearing out of self-interest. I'm not going to go after this guy. He's bigger than me. And we can forgive someone simply in order to get something from them. These are all false motivations of these other character graces we've talked about. But when love is the motivation behind these different things, why then they're genuine, they're wonderful, they're godly, they're Christ-like. Now, he speaks there in verse 15 of peace. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you also were called in one body and be thankful. The peace of God. You know, I consider, if we're using this garment metaphor, I consider the peace of God to be your mirror. You know, when you get dressed, if you're sensible, if you're a guy, probably not, but if you're sensible, you, you get dressed in front of a mirror to make sure the socks match, you know? I actually saw a friend of mine who posted on Facebook that he went around for the whole day and not, he, it wasn't that he mismatched his socks, he mismatched his shoes, and they weren't like shoes that were kind of like each other. They had nothing to do with each other. Whew, dress in front of a mirror, dude. But peace, I call it a mirror because if you have the peace of God in your life, that's reflecting to you that these other character graces are evident. Because when we are walking in the center of God's will, we have the peace of God regardless of the circumstances that we are facing in our lives at that time. I've seen people who have uh, very serious diseases exude a peace that sometimes I could be envious of. I can see people who are struggling in the midst of a financial crisis, and yet they have peace. And, and the character graces that are part of their life are ratified or reflected back to them by the fact that they have peace. It's when we have unease in our lives, when we feel anxious or at unease, ill at ease, you could probably check your, your wardrobe and find something missing. I was blessed by a man that I met in India. I mentioned him to you when we were giving the report on our, our India trip. This man, Jason Victor, he was the, uh, the um, evangelist that joined us in Bagdogra. And he had been a Christian since he was a young man, and he was in the midst of his university studies and all. And, uh, and he heard a story back in 19... It wasn't a story, it was a news report... I think it was 1999, of an Australian missionary and his family that were, that were missionaries in India, and they were ministering and sharing the gospel in India. And they were murdered 
They were, they were burned to death for sharing the gospel in the midst of a Hindu place. And this gave Jason a great deal of angst and tr- it troubled his spirit. And it troubled him because he realized, here are these people that came thousands of miles to my country because they loved my people enough to put their lives on the line to give them the truth of the gospel. And in the meantime, all I'm doing is serving myself. I'm not showing love. I'm not showing kindness. I'm not, I don't have peace in my heart. I looked in the mirror and my wardrobe was askew. And that's what led him to devote his his life, his vocation to the Lord. That's the way that works. Now we have uh, in verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts in the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of God, I consider the word of God your tailor and your laundry. I call it your tailor because it is in the midst of studying the word of God that you construct these garments of praise. You you construct all of these Christian Christ-like character graces. That's where they're imparted to you. The spirit of God leads you to his word. He takes the word of God and he imprints it on your heart. And what flows from the word of God residing in your heart are these beautiful garments of character, Christ-like character. And then it's your laundry for what the psalmist says in Psalm 19.9, how can a young man or woman cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. When we come in here on a Sunday, what are we doing? We're, we're, We're washing up. We're cleaning up. We're making garments of praise and we're getting cleaned and washed. And we are going to be cleaned and washed now because this is the first Sunday of the month. And as the first Sunday of the month, we take communion. And this is that time when we as believers, this is an ordinance that Christ gave to believers. When we come to the Lord for communion, what I urge you to do in the time that we have before you actually come up for the elements so you take a moment of prayer, and we're going to do that here in a minute. You ask the Lord, Lord, these things that I've collected over the course of the week, over the course of time, in my heart, that have separated or have obscured my vision and my hearing of what you're saying and doing in my life, Lord, take those things from me. Wash me clean of those things. Father, build me up in you help me to see clearly what the bread and the wine represents it is the broken body of jesus christ it is the poured out blood the perfect blood that didn't just cover sin for a time it took it away and we are to see these things clearly for what they are that we might know the depths of the riches of the love of god that he has brought into our lives So I'm going to ask Vince and Christina to come on up. They're going to give us a song, a communion song. And I want to just uh, close the Bible study and open the communion table with a word of prayer. And then you are welcome to come up to either table 
Take the communion elements. You can uh, have those back at your seat. If you're sitting next to somebody who can't make it up to the front themselves, why, um, bring back elements for them and serve them as well. Heavenly Father, Lord, first of all, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these garments of Christ-like character that you have brought to our notice. I pray, Lord, that these things would be real in our lives. These would not be just things that are put on but they are things that are put on because they are internal attitudes that we are living out before people in the world. Father, fortify us in your truth. Cleanse us in our way through your word, through your spirit. Lord, as we now get ready to take communion, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for the broken body of Jesus and for his poured out blood. We thank you, God, for his resurrection, which tells us unequivocally that we have eternal life because we are in him. So Lord, minister to the hearts of each and every soul in this room, Lord. Lift them, Lord, from their circumstances so that their eyes could be wholly and solely fixed on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.
us to be here singing your praises in anticipation of heaven. And Lord, we, as we approach the Christmas season, Lord, we have this opportunity yet again to focus on the wonder of God coming to earth, of God conferring his righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness, for conferring beauty for our ashes. Lord, help us in this holiday season that we're approaching to do just what this chapter 3 of Colossians instructs, which is to set our affections on you, Lord. To not get so caught up in the world's way of of celebrating Christmas that we forget Christ's mass, Christ's coming to earth to save our lives. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, God, for meeting us here in this place today. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen. Amen.